Thanks for being with us this morning on this rather hazy morning, although the air quality in Metro Vancouver uh, not nearly as bad as it is in some other parts of the province. And we're going to talk about that a bit later on in the program. We're going to check in with the mayor of Kimberley to find out what's happening in that city after the evacuation order for some properties uh, was issued and the alert uh, for others is still uh, underway. And uh, looking on the website as well at the Kelowna Apple Triathlon, the races today have been cancelled because of the poor air quality. So that uh, will be upsetting for people who were participating in and uh, hoping to watch the races going on today. Uh, too much smoke in the air. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, triathlon and uh, the events around that have been cancelled for the day. Uh, Let's shift gears, though, and talk a little bit about politics. And in particular, we are talking about transition allowances. And Mike Klassen joins us now. He is a columnist with the Vancouver Courier. Mike, great to have you back on the program. Yeah, good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, this is a piece uh, one of your colleagues uh, wrote uh, that uh, is in The Courier. Uh, your colleague, uh, Mike Howell, penned this, I think, before he went on vacation. Uh, it's talking, though, about transition allowances. And it's it's an interesting topic because it does get people talking and wondering, uh, wouldn't you love to have a job where when you choose to leave, you still get paid money to do so? Yeah, so I guess I've got a, a few kind of angles on this story, which originally was uh, researched and, and is acknowledged by Mike Howell in this piece uh, by Bob Mackin, a reporter who uh, chases down uh, a lot of these stories. Um, you know what? Being a, a city councillor can be a, a tough job. Uh, it is uh, certainly when you're you know at the city of Vancouver level, it takes up a lot of time, and, and you're compensated reasonably well. I mean, I think you get about roughly about $85,000. Um, there's not a whole lot of benefits uh, that go with the job, but um, you also can be on other committees and, and that can uh, make your salary a little better. And for the mayor, it's, it's close to about $150,000 a year, I think, or maybe a bit higher. Um, but this transition allowance uh, is what kind of sticks in people's craw a little bit. And I think we have to kind of sort of step back and maybe ask ourselves, uh, ask ourselves a little bit about what the idea of being a, a city councillor or, or a local government elected official is, because it seems like now we're kind of turning this more into a job. And it really was never intended to be a full-time job. And certainly on in, in smaller municipalities, you know, you're, you're talking about a, you know, a committee meeting um, or a council meeting, you know, every couple of weeks. Um, it's not a huge uh, amount of time. Um, and as a result, the, the pay is a bit lower other municipalities as well are giving these transition allowances, and some of them are quite hefty. Um, and, of course, we remember what happened when we found out about the Metro Vancouver um, so-called uh, retirement allowance, uh, reverse pension, as people called it, what they voted themselves and, and uh, eventually about two weeks later back down on. That was going to get the chair, Mayor Greg Moore, $65,000 as a, as a parting gift uh, when he left that job. Um, Mayor Moore, who is uh, not r- r- running again as Mayor of Port Coquitlam, is getting $48,000 uh, as a transition allowance, uh, which is actually quite a bit larger than the Mayor of Vancouver's, which is around uh, $28,000. So, yeah, these are the kinds of numbers you kind of ask yourselves, what's the point of giving this money to people who are, have decided to leave office? 
And what do you make of the argument that as a, a politician, you sometimes make decisions that are very unpopular and that can be uh, that can cause problems after you leave office and are looking for work elsewhere? I don't think I think anybody uh, who decides to run for public office has to recognize um, the, uh, the 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 risks and rewards of being in that position. I mean, first of all, I, I really do view um, when you step up to become a park commissioner or a school trustee or a city councillor, it really is public service. And you do receive a stipend. Some of the stipends are quite modest uh, for the park board, for example. I think they get less than $20,000 a year for all those committee meetings. And, um, and uh, there's a lot of hours and community service that goes into that. Um, but uh, you know what? I think that people have to recognize that they are going to be making unpopular decisions. So you're going into the job thinking, knowing that hopefully that this is not just going to be a, a bowl of cherries. You're going to have to face down um, critics. Uh, obviously, the social media side of things has gotten very testy. Um, so I don't, and, and also, you sort of just think about the numbers themselves. I mean, we're talking about uh, people who've been serving for you know, in some cases, many years, and they're getting um, uh, stipends of, you know, maybe small five-figure stipends. Um, and they are really not very much money in the scheme of things. You have to kind of ask yourself, you know, Mayor Robertson, who is um, you know, has a pretty comfortable life, I gather, is getting really what amounts to not very much money. And uh, uh, George Affleck, who served on council for uh, for seven eight years, who, by the way, opposed having this uh, this payment, is getting something like $9,000. Um, it's not really going to help people uh, very much. It's a small amount of money. So it's a, it's a weird gesture. And, you know, if you want to compensate people, people better than put that on the table. But um, most of us have to try and save for, uh, you know, uh, life changes and changes in our careers. And uh, I, so I, I'm not really sure if I'm convinced of that argument that this is a, a little payment to try and soften the blow because you uh, voted for an extra few stories on a, on a mm-hmm. condo tower. And what about uh, the difference, uh, and Mike mentions this in the column as well, uh, do you think there is a difference or should there be if you are defeated or if you choose to retire? Uh, well, I don't think they've made that distinction. I mean, uh, if, um, you know, there are some pretty crazy numbers out there where this is, um, uh, that, that kind of goes, because Vancouver actually um, is under a slightly different set of rules with the Vancouver Charter, they went and readjusted their uh, salaries to be higher overall. And of course, as I indicated, uh, a Vancouver councillor's job is more akin to a full-time job, although it's not really intended to be a full-time job. It's, meant, it's paid as a, as a part-time uh, position. Um, except for the mayor. Uh, in the um, uh, corporation of Delta, the city of Delta, I guess now, uh, they paid out uh, Mayor Jackson, uh, and it's all based on a formula for a maximum of 12 years. Mayor Jackson has been, uh, you know, in city council for decades, um, got paid $128,000. Um, some of her colleagues got $40,000, and it, regardless of whether they left, you know, uh, voluntarily or not. So this is not a... Uh, um, this is this is just a basically a payout. It's a it's a payout for people to kind of uh, get, and it's there's no real distinguishing factor whether it's voluntary or not.
but uh, and, and according to the website, and Mike put this in the piece as well, though, the, so the mayor earns in Vancouver, uh, the mayor earning uh, about $165,000 a year, councillors making 82000 That's a lot of money if it's considered a part-time job. Yeah, uh, for the well, like I say, I think the mayor really is a, is is a full time position, and uh, depending on how uh, you know, I think all the councillors approach the job a little bit differently. Um, there are some who you know spend a lot of time out in the community, you know, their own time really, um, and then uh, uh, turn that position into a full time position. Some you know we hear about in some cities, uh, smaller cities where people are getting paid much less, yet they, you know, spend all of their hours around City Hall, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how things work. Um, it really is intended to be almost like a board position. If you, if you, you know, for any of us who've served on community boards or volunteered in the community, you know, it's about regular meetings and it's about, you know, reading up on, making sure you do your homework and read the council package and then show up, listen to the public when there's a public hearing and um and make your decisions based upon all of that input that's what you're being paid for and uh so it, you're right i mean uh $82,000 for a part-time position is is a nice way to if you've got something else on, uh, on going on the side that's you know that's a, a pretty decent living uh, do you think people are losing uh, faith in their elected politicians or, or focusing when we focus on on things like this, like transition allowances and like, like you mentioned at the Metro board uh, when it uh, when it was known that they uh, voted themselves the raise and voted themselves the retirement uh, cushion and such people were angry. Uh, do we do we lose sight of what our elected politicians are supposed to be doing when we focus so much on the dollar figures? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, I, uh, as I acknowledge at the, at the top, I think it's it's can be difficult and challenging work because you are faced with doing making uh, challenging decisions that are going to affect communities. Um, you're, you're dealing with police budgets, you know, there's crime and safety issues. There's all sorts of things. So the the job takes somebody who has some gravitas, has has that sense of responsibility, and 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 cares for the community, um, and hopefully doesn't bring in with a whole bunch of preset uh, political agendas with them. Local government is quite a bit different than I would say, and I'm, I'm going to speak to your sort of cynicism question. I mean, at, at, at senior levels of government, um, as an MLA or as a member of parliament, those are huge commitments of, of, of time. You're away from family and you're um, often away from home. Um, local government is a, is a different kettle of fish. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's community service. And I think what we're seeing now is, is far too many people are seeing this as a job. And if they get that job once and they kind of keep their head down, they can keep have getting that job, you know, election after election, and then maybe go and use it to uh, go to higher levels of government. I think we should sort of stop thinking about um, uh, being a city councillor or a school trustee that way, but see it for what it really is or was intended to be, which is public service. And I think this is when we start getting into, I think the remuneration issue is, is fine. People do deserve to get some kind of stipend and, you know, you, you're you going to put off people if this is going to take up a lot of their time and not pay them anything. But these transition allowances and how they kind of, you know, sneak them in and vote, uh, vote for them themselves just really garners a lot of cynicism. So I think you're right. We have to Ask people who are running for office, why are you running for office? And do you see this as, as a job or do you see this for what it really should be, which is public service?
No, exactly. And one of the things that, that comes up as well often when we do, uh, we, when we talk about the, the sneaking in of these uh, types of bonuses and such is when you run for office, it's not as though the, the, uh, the money that you're going to be receiving is hidden and you don't know what it is. When you make the decision to run for office, you know what the salary is, you know what the compensation is, and that should probably be part of your decision whether or not you want to do it. Oh, exactly. I mean, not only do people uh, have it all in writing as to what they're going to be earning, and they should know that in advance, I think they need to kind of talk to people who've been in public office and done it well and and ask them for their advice. I mean, uh, there's a heck of a lot of people running for mayor in the city of Vancouver right now. There's a lot of people that are running for uh, council or park board or school board for the very first time. Um, they should get out there and talk to people who have been in public life and talk about the sacrifices, talk about the times you don't come come home and have dinner with your family and um, and really get a strong sense of, is this what you want to be doing? Are you just there because, you know, you want to be seen on TV or, you you know, you, you want to show up at a lot of ribbon cuttings? I think this is really important. People need to know what the job is and what public service means. All right. We'll leave it there. Mike Klassen, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Well, if you are a parent and you're about to do the back-to-school shopping, you know how expensive it can be. In fact, a recent survey that was done by RetailMeNot.ca shows that about 80% of Canadian parents say that shopping is getting more and more expensive every year. And one in four, so about 25%, say that they spend more money getting their children ready for back-to-school than they do during the holidays. So joining us on the line to talk a little bit more about uh, budgets and how to make this time a little more uh, workable is Scott Hanna. He is the president of the Credit Counseling Society. Scott, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Uh, We often talk about uh, Christmas holidays, buying a house, uh, what have you, as being the big hits to the wallet. But back to school shopping can also be pretty stressful for people. You know, for a lot of people, Jill, that going back to school for their kids is the second most expensive uh, time of the year for them. You know, for a lot of families who may have both parents working, they've got their kids perhaps in daycare, full-time or camps, and now they're hit with back-to-school expenses. So it can be really challenging on a person's budget. It seems like it's a bit of pressure as well when we talk about parents or what they're expected to purchase for children in that everything's supposed to be new. Uh, in some cases, you can buy it through the school, which parents often say costs more than going out and doing it on your own. It seems like there is a lot of pressure there. Well, there is. And there's that pressure, of course, to keep up with everyone else. And, and so it's important for all families to, to look at their own circumstances, what, what they can and can't afford, and to really to ensure their kids understand this is what we can manage. This is our budget and give them those expectations. And then oftentimes what happens is that parents uh, don't do that. And it's really important. So the kids, if they don't understand what, uh, that they're living within a budget, of course they're going to ask, well, I need to have all brand name this and that, as opposed to, I understand that we have to live within our means and we've only got X amount of dollars to spend, and so how are we going to spend this? And so while it's a stressful time of the year, parents can certainly reduce that stress by giving their kids an opportunity to learn some more about how to manage money, uh, to live within their means, but also help the kids to understand that, um, getting back to school means that, yes, we have to ensure that we have the basic necessities. What are our school supplies that we need? What clothes are still good that we can take over what we had from last year that can still be used for this year? And also understanding that we don't have to purchase everything all at once. 
things can be bought over a period of two or three months as opposed to one shot one shot shopping. And I would imagine technology is also making things different in that it's not just purchasing pencil crayons and uh, things for school, but to kids wanting the latest technology as well. Well, kids wanting the latest technology and, well, of course, technology being brought into the, into the classrooms where there's an expectation that your kids are going to need a notebook, a, lap, a laptop in terms of going to school. And so really understanding what they do and don't need. But, but as well, too, there's options for parents that, um, as opposed to buying uh, brand new, like openbox.ca, where you can, you can purchase refurbished items at a, uh, a remarkable uh, reduction in cost. Uh, certainly. So looking around for those options, as well as if you've got older kids, what, what uh, technology can be passed down to younger kids as opposed to going out and buying brand new? And is it something, you mentioned this, as far as rather than breaking the bank or giving uh, kids everything they want, using as as a bit of a teachable moment on budgeting? It certainly is. And I would, and we encourage uh, parents that, uh, to sit down with the kids. And once they've determined what they need, they've looked at uh, what they have in terms of school supplies on hand, then making a list of all the things that they need to purchase for the upcoming school year and making a checklist and saying, now, this is how much money we have to spend. So that when we go make a purchase and we deduct that purchase from what we have to spend, this is what we have left. And so when kids are looking at, well, can I have this main brand item? Well, yes, you can. But if you have that, it means that we've only got this much money left to buy all these other things. So is that really important to you or not? And so by involving kids in the discussion, we, we avoid this. You can't have this. As, and it changes to you can have this, but it comes at a cost. So what do you want to do? So making those age-appropriate questions and asking our kids in terms of this, it really helps involve them in the process. And then, so they're more inclined to feel, okay, I'm taking some responsibility. I'm going to be careful with this decision. Uh, you mentioned as well not buying everything. You don't have to buy everything at once because it does seem like heading into September is a big hit for a lot of parents. Uh, but then it's also thinking of things ahead that are d- down the road as well, whether it's field trips and there will be other expenses, I would imagine, to think about. Well, there certainly is, especially with kids involved in other activities, whether it's sports activities. And, and again, opportunities to look at, can I purchase something secondhand that's uh, slightly used but still in good condition but at a fraction of the cost? Understanding, too, that the fact that uh, you know, we're in September, we're still in the summer months. We don't have to have a winter coat in September. You're probably not going to utilize that until November, December anyway. So really giving yourself some time to look, to look at this and those expenses. And, of course, we always encourage parents, if they can, at, uh, avoid using their credit cards and putting uh, cre- putting debt on those credit cards and carrying it for a period of months because that certainly adds to the cost. So again, by having a budget, sticking to it, we find that overall parents are going to save 15 to 20% compared to those parents who just, here's a list, I'm just going to shop till I drop and buy those items. Is that the, the biggest mistake or what is the number one mistake you see parents making? <clears throat> Not planning in advance. Not taking the time to let's take stock of the inventory that we have on hand in terms of school supplies, what clothes are still good, and what we need to buy for the school year. So really having a plan. So spending some time in advance, identifying what they need, spending some time online, perhaps going to to um, websites like Rebe or Flip, where they can get some discount coupons, comparing prices to make sure they're getting the, the very best value for their dollar. So invest in that time up front before you just go out and start shopping. So that's a, that's a real mistake that parents make. So it's worthwhile doing, even if you spend a day doing that, you're going to save money.
So exactly. So planning ahead and not uh, because it's not as though it's a surprise that the school year is starting up. Uh, and and I get it. Parents are very busy, and it's it's summertime. You want to take a break and relax, but it can be very uh, positive, or it can be have a, po- a more positive outcome than if you do that planning. It certainly can. And for those who perhaps haven't planned ahead, we would encourage them to you know, make a change for next year. So so for example, if if you had two or three kids and you typically spend $1,000 getting back to school for your uh, uh, expenses, then we would encourage parents that will set $40 aside every payday. And if you do that, by the time time the school season rolls around next year, you'll have all the money that you need on hand in your bank account, as opposed to scrambling last minute. So again, get that planning down ahead of time, look ahead, you'll save yourself a lot of money and a lot of stress. All right, very good advice. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Good to talk to you this morning. Have a great day, Jill. All right, you too. Thanks for being with us this morning. A number of environmental groups, uh, the David Suzuki Foundation, as well as the Raincoast Conservation Foundation, are calling for an immediate closure of Chinook salmon fishing off the BC coast as one way to help the orcas, the southern resident killer whales. Certainly, we've been talking a lot about the southern resident killer whales in the news lately. Uh, Joining me on the line to talk a little bit more about this is Jay Richland, the Western Canada Director General for the David Suzuki Foundation. Jay, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Good morning, Joe. It's my pleasure. Good morning. Uh, you calling for a ban on the fishery? What would that do? Do you think that would make a big enough impact to, to help save the whales? Well, we're calling for two things to happen immediately, and that's the ban on the fishing and a complete ban on all intentional whale watching on these whales. The two things together are meant to allow the whales the maximum opportunity to feed. They don't just need more fish in the water. They need the access to the fish undisturbed by boats, by noise, and by the number of people that can be around during whale watching. So, yes, both of those things taken together would give us the last couple of months of abundant Chinook numbers for the whales to have a chance at eating as much as possible. Uh, I know that uh, some of the the operators of the whale watching uh, uh, companies uh, have come out against this, saying that uh, they they don't have an impact, saying that the rules that keep them a safe distance from the whales are in place for a reason, and, and they argue that their being on the water doesn't impact the whales' feeding. Well, there's just no science to back that up. I'm sorry. The uh, whale watchers, many of them, have done a very excellent job at trying to educate the public and trying to operate their boats more responsibly, but not all of them are. And enforcement is very, very difficult. And uh, recreational boaters tend to also follow the whale watchers, uh, or recreational fishermen also follow the whale watchers to the whales. So the amount of noise in the ocean is a scientifically established fact. Disturbance from boats reduces the ability to feed. It just does happen. So we know where the most important fishing uh, eating areas are for the whales, We've been trying to get those areas excluded. It has not happened all summer, and we've only got a couple of months of abundant Chinook populations left. And with uh, whales starving to death and losing calves, we need to take some immediate action now. And as far as a ban on fishing or calling for a ban, do you think that would be enough, though, when you look at the, the number of, of fish that are taken from anglers, uh, from, from fishermen in those areas? Uh, it's, it's a small number compared to, say, how many fish are eaten by seals and by sea lions and, and such. Do you think that that small number would really make that big of an impact? Well, I'm not sure it's actually a small number compared. Uh, the, the seal idea is a bit of a red herring. There's uh, no science to back up the idea that the seals are the main problem here. Uh, human fisheries 
destruction of habitat. Uh, these are the main things that have made it very difficult for these Chinook salmon to survive. So the, the clear evidence is that the Chinook themselves are in trouble. We need a plan to rebuild those Chinook stocks for the long term so the fishermen can have them, so that the whales can have them, uh, so that the whale watching industry has a healthy population of whales to see. There's a lot of economic benefit in healthy populations of Chinook and healthy populations of whales, but we don't have healthy populations, and so we're going to lose that economic benefit for good if we don't do something now. In, in Washington State, though, they've just approved a limited cull of uh, the seal, uh, sea lion uh, seal population, though. So are you saying they, they made that decision without any science to back it up? I don't think there's any evidence that will demonstrate that a population cull of seals will help rebuild wild salmon. The way to rebuild those wild salmon is to make sure that we are reducing all take on them until we have a plan that allows enough of them to get back and spawn every year. There are a few places where seals have figured out how to eat returning salmon, and and yes, it can be a localized problem, Excuse me, but uh, it's been looked at over and over again. Uh, and, and culling seals is not the way to rebuild this population. It certainly isn't going to uh, help the, the whales in the short term. Right now, what we need is the, the Chinook are in the water. We need human fishermen to leave them alone as well. And then we need to get away from the whales so that boats aren't disturbing them. Um, presence of boats reduces the feeding efficiency of whales by up to 25% and, and causes them five hours less a day of the ability to feed well. And, and they just don't have the ability to withstand that right now. We've got uh, governments on both sides of the border taking the extreme measures of going out and trying to medicate whales. It's clear we need to take urgent action. We should take actions that are going to make a difference to the whole population. And how do we know about that, the number, the the 25% less and the, the fewer hours that they're able to feed? This is the most well-studied population of marine mammals in the world. We've known since uh, 2004 or before that this population was in trouble. They were listed by the science body in Canada that, uh, that determines endangered species status back then. It took us 15 years of lawsuits and intensive work to even get whale rebuilding plans issued by government. Now those plans are there, but the actions in them are not being implemented. We started calling for an emergency order earlier this year. The government of Canada said that, yes, they believe these whales are under imminent threat. By law, they should be recommending an emergency order to cabinet that would then allow them to make a bunch of these changes without having to go through years of regulatory negotiations. That's what we need. We need some immediate action. These whales are at the end of the line. And I think everybody loves these whales. And we know that they benefit our society and our economy as well as just being amazing creatures that uh, deserve a chance. Uh, we have a new uh, fisheries minister. He's from the West Coast. He's from North Vancouver. Uh, have you had any response to this call from him or, or, or anybody else in that ministry? Well, Minister Wilkinson has uh, been involved in this file for quite some time. He was also the parliamentary secretary uh, to the Minister of Environment before his, his previous uh, or before his current promotion. And, and we're very, very excited to have uh, Minister Wilkinson on board. He understands the West Coast. He understands the issues. Um, the Fisheries Department needs to take these actions. They haven't done so yet. I know they're concerned about the, the implications to certain sectors of the economy. Um, but at this point, we believe it's his legal duty to recommend the emergency order. 
And these two steps among many, these are not the only two things these whales need, but these two steps would give us the best immediate option to give them some benefit. Uh, what other response have you been getting to this or have you been getting response? Well, from most of the supporters that we have, and from many of the regular people on the street, we get the response like, what? We're still fishing these Chinook? What are we doing? Of course we should stop doing it. People get quite emotional about it and quite angry that we're actually still letting people fish. Um, and of course, from the, the fishing community and the whale watching community, we, we get a mix. Some understand there have been some very good voluntary actions taken by fishermen and by whale watching companies. Um, but some don't want the change in the status quo, and they are actively resisting in all sorts of uh, public and private forums. So we understand that it's a challenge. We understand that it's a very difficult to see what you do for a living be altered. Um, I, I think if we do this in the short term, we have a much better chance at having a long-term successful population of whales that we can all benefit from. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Well, the haze outside is a reminder that a state of emergency was declared in this province because of the various wildfires burning out of control in many, many communities. Uh, We are dealing with haze, but other communities are certainly uh, dealing with much, much more stressful situations. And joining uh, us on the line now is uh, Don McCormick, who is the mayor of Kimberley. Mayor McCormick, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, How are things in Kimberley today? Well, things are uh, pretty quiet this morning. Um, you know, the uh, the visible part of what we see is really the smoke in the air. And although it's a little bit smokier this morning, um, it's still, quite frankly, nowhere near the images that we saw of Prince George the other day. Yeah, those were those were eerie, to say the least, uh, the darkness in the day. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, this would, uh, you know, the smoke in the air here this morning is, is uh, more like a fog. Uh, like you would experience with a foggy morning in the fall. And how is your community as far as uh, we know that the entire city had been put under evacuation alert? Where do things stand with that now? Well, the alert still stands. Um, in fact, we, uh, um, we finished a number of organizations here, finished delivering, uh, hand-delivering the alert notices uh, at about 6 p.m. yesterday. We had about 4,500 residences and uh, commercial businesses that we had to deliver to and uh, the folks just did an awesome job in getting those out um, in less than 24 hours. And are there people as well, uh, certain uh, properties that are under an order that have been told they have to leave? Yeah, the St. Mary Valley, there's about 65 properties between uh, Kimberley and where this fire is, uh, mostly around the St. Mary Lake area and in between Kimberley, uh, are under order. And in fact, uh, the majority of them have, have in fact left their properties at this point. There's a reception center in uh, Kimberley, a registration center where uh, those owners have come in and registered so that we know that they are in fact out. They've now gone to stay with friends and family in the uh, Kimberley-Cranbrook area. And for those that uh, didn't have anywhere to go, they they were uh, given hotel accommodation. Are there some that have stayed? It seems whenever we have uh, orders like this, there are some that choose to stay behind and try and save their properties if the forest or if the fire comes closer. Yeah, uh, I understand that there are one or two of those properties where, where folks have decided to uh, uh, stay and hunker down uh, despite our, our, best, uh, uh, our best advice otherwise. But uh, at this point in time, those properties aren't in imminent danger, uh, even though they are under order. Uh, the fire is still about, well, I think, about eight kilometers from uh, St. Mary Lake. 
So we'll just have to uh, wait and see how this, uh, how this unfolds. And what are you hearing from the wildfire service as far as the fire itself and the efforts to, to contain it and to keep it away from structures? Well, this, this particular fire on, I guess it was Thursday morning, very early Thursday morning, uh, had about 45 or 50 kilometer an hour winds that whipped up and uh, uh, definitely ratcheted up the, the nature of the fire and made it way more unpredictable. And that's what uh, caused the alert to be put on. Uh, it has been up and down over the last few days, although the, you know, since, uh, since, early, Saturday, uh, since early Saturday morning, uh, the fire has not moved all that much. Uh, Mother Nature cooperated yesterday with higher humidity, uh, lower winds, uh, and cooler temperatures. The only thing we haven't had is, is rain, and uh, we'd love to see a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. You and uh, many other uh, communities uh, as well, I'm sure. Uh, have you been able to talk to people or, or find out how people are coping with this? It's got to be stressful. Uh, it, it, it has been. I think the message that we've been trying to deliver to folks is that, um, you know, first of all, it is an alert. Um, and really, inside an alert, it's a warning. And there are certain things that you need to be doing and uh, specifically getting your emergency kits together. So the community has been focusing in on doing that. Uh, and really, most of the talk has been around, I've got my kit ready. Um, you know, it was a good exercise to go through. Um, and uh, everybody's pretty calm about the whole thing. Uh, we have every confidence in the wildfire uh, service that uh, they're going to be able to get this fire under control. So there is, uh, there is really a, a degree of calm, um, and uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, panic doesn't, uh, doesn't help anything. Uh, have, have there been scenarios like this before in Kimberley? Back in the mid-'80s, there was a fire in the Mark Creek watershed, which was uh, just outside Kimberley. And I understand that at that point in time, uh, the city was on about 12-hour evacuation notice. Um, things were a little less sophisticated uh, back in those days with respect to wildfires, so we didn't have as many uh, stages to go through. It was just be ready 12 hours and you need to be out of here. Uh, the fire never did reach the city. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, and from some of the folks I've talked to, that, that's really the last time there had been any danger. And are there particular structures? I know we've been talking as well about historical sites and that, and not that one is more important than the other, but are there particular structures or things that are perhaps on a higher priority to save? Um, I, would, I would have to say no to that. Um, I think right now, because of where the fire is, um, you know, we're at a stage right now where, it, where it's just let's watch. Uh, there re- really isn't an awful lot of specific things that we can be doing uh, to, uh, you know, to help in, in that regard. But, um, you know, should, should we move to a higher level of alert, then, you know, another, another sequence of priorities kicks in and we'll deal with it at that point in time. And what should people be doing as far as uh, getting ready for this? Are there things, uh, getting the house ready when it comes to appliances or plans for pets and such? What, what can people be doing now to make sure if it does, uh, worst case scenario, if it does move to an order that they're ready to go? Well, EMBC uh, has recommendations for uh, emergency kits uh, that includes all of those things, um, you know, important papers, you know, what to do with pets, uh, various foods and things that you might want to pack in the event that, you know, you will need that over the short term. And uh, we've been uh, uh, referencing their website. And uh, in fact, the uh, alert notice that went out talks to this. And really, that's what we want people to do is make sure they've got their emergency kits ready. 
And beyond that, it's very much a wait and see. So for, you know, most of the city, it's really business as usual. I will say that uh, it's gotten a lot less busy in Kimberley for, you know, for the middle of August. Um, I think a lot of the visitors to town, um, you know, have decided to, uh, have decided to go home. Uh, but uh, as far as the community itself is concerned, we're, we're going about our business as usual. And, and you mentioned as well, it's kind of like a fog there today. Uh, is there a concern uh, regarding air quality for people? Oh, no question. Uh, the air quality is, like it has been right across the province, has been, uh, you know, terrible for some time now. And uh, those with uh, breathing disorders uh, or where, you know, the, uh, the particulate in this smoke is really, really bothering them, uh, people are just staying indoors. All right. Well, Mayor, we'll let you go there. I know it's a busy time for you, but thank you so much for joining us, for taking a few moments with us today. Thanks for being with us this morning uh, in keeping with talking about the series of tweets that Maxime Bernier sent out last Sunday and the conversations that have been sparked because of that. We are going to bring in Shachi Curl, who is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. Shachi, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks, Jill, for having me. Uh, we're usually talking to you about poll results and uh, people's opinions on various things, but today we're talking about your opinion because you've written about this. So what what was it about what Maxime Bernier tweeted and put out there that uh, made you want to write this? So um, I wrote a piece uh, that's that's appeared in some post media properties, just sort of talking about my own personal experience, lived experience with multiculturalism. So. I think you're right. I don't normally talk about what I think. I talk about what other Canadians think. Um, But there was something about this particular conversation that that really seemed to have hijacked something that, you know, a lot of kids and young people uh, experience through the school system in terms of multiculturalism. And, uh, I, you know, I, I was one of that first generation of kids that grew up under this policy as um, the daughter of immigrants to this country. And I just thought, you know, there's probably some perspectives here that people are missing because everyone's sort of talking about extreme multiculturalism or, or the diversity or the cult of diversity and, and the other inflammatory words that Maxime Bernier has used. I think the points I wanted to make are, number one, Uh, Multiculturalism policy has actually helped uh, produce some some quite comfortable, high-functioning Canadians who don't go to bed thinking about their identity, don't wake up thinking about their identity. They just get on with their lives because they were... Uh, raised in an environment in Canadian society that helped them feel like they were actually part of the country. And a lot of other countries, a lot of other Western uh, European countries do not do that. And you've got newcomers, immigrants, migrants sort of growing up on the margins of society uh, and not feeling like they are part of the country they're living in. That's not usually the case when when uh, you're growing up in Canada and you're a visible minority or, or the, the an immigrant or the child of immigrants. Uh, do you think it's, it's sparked a conversation though and, and perhaps Maxime Bernier touched on something that that people want to talk about maybe he didn't do it in the best way though well uh i touch on that too um in in the column that i wrote and i said look um 
you know, here here is some polling data. Two-thirds of Canadians are of the view that newcomers need to do more to fit into mainstream society. That's a pretty significant number. And my point is, uh, if that's what people are feeling in this country, then we should be having a conversation about it. We should be having a conversation about integration. We should be having conversations about multiculturalism. We should be having conversations about immigration levels and targets. Those are all things that should be on the table. But, you know, I'm I'm disinclined to give Bernier a pass for inelegance uh, or for simply being clumsy with his words, because he knows exactly what he is doing. And I think rather than trying to broach what can be um, a, a much a badly uh, a, a, a badly overdue conversation a conversation that we need to have and do it in a way that's kind of clumsy or or, or not well worded what he's trying to do is is um, really you know pull people to the sides uh, of of the debate pull people to both ends of the spectrum and start talking past each other rather than talking to each other. And by the way, you know, what we see with the Trudeau government tweeting every every chance they get that diversity is our strength, that adds to the confusion and the jumble. Like, these are separate issues. Diversity and multiculturalism is a separate issue than the asylum seekers crossing the border at Roxham Road, than immigration levels, than, than a whole lot of issues. They are related but they're not the same. And we have lots of strengths in this country. Diversity is a strength, but guess what? Uh, Freedom is a strength. Uh, A good economy is a strength. Shared values are a strength. A lack of corruption is a strength. There's a lot Canada has going for it. Um, And uh, it just, to me, I, I weighed in on this one personally because I felt like Maxime Bernier was, uh, and and to and to an extent, the Trudeau government are are trying to play politics with this issue, and I I value the system that I grew up under, and I I don't think we should be playing politics with it. And and it seems like that's where the conversation has gone now as well, with Andrew Scheer first putting out a statement, now commenting on this, and now there's the back and forth between Maxime Bernier and Andrew Scheer about identity politics, which almost seems like it's just taken the conversation, or the one that maybe we should have been having, and now it's thrown this into the mix and completely just diverted things. Yeah, and... Considering that I think I can I can say with some accuracy that neither Maxime Bernier nor Andrew Scheer nor Justin Trudeau have probably experienced from from a, a lived perspective um, how official multiculturalism policy can actually help uh, a young person, given that none of them are actually children of immigrants. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 a little bit you know you're watching this from a distance uh, seeing seeing a bunch of people who may not have as much stake in these issues talk about these issues as though hey, it's going to be what what sinks or 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 uh, or saves Canada. Let me tell you the issues that are going to sink or save Canada these days have a lot more to do with how we're doing on the NAFTA file and how we're doing on the climate change file. Um, and and how we're doing on a whole host of economic uh, issues. I'm not saying again that we shouldn't be having conversations um, about multiculturalism or about immigration policy. Let's just have it respectfully and not, you know, 
uh, jumble it into a whole host of issues that people are angry about in this country. I don't think that serves any purpose. And you make an interesting point. Here we have three three men, Maxime Bernier, Andrew Scheer, uh, Justin Trudeau, for as an example. Three men, like you said, they're not uh, they're not children of immigrants. They they come from a perspective, not that perspective. Does the messenger matter in this case? Because when I first saw the tweets from Maxime Bernier and looking at the conversations that have come from them, I thought back to a few years ago talking to Ujjal Desange, and he had come out saying talking about Canadian values and basically saying if you're going to come to Canada. You have to you have to adopt these values. You cannot come from a country, say that uh, that where polygamy is okay. You can't come where women are treated poorly and think that you can bring that with you. Is it different when the messenger is someone like Ujjal Dosange rather than someone like Maxime Bernier? I think it can be, but I also think that that's not what Maxime Bernier is talking about. If he if he was being as specific as that. I think you'd see a lot of resonance across the board and say, yeah, we agree with that. We're on board with that. Uh, When Maxime Bernier uses, you know, just the the clownish tactics of talking about the cult of diversity, what what the heck? I'm not going to... I, what the heck is that? I was going to use another word, but it's it's Sunday morning, Jill. I won't do that to you. <laughs> you know, when when he talks about extreme multiculturalism, what is that? Like, what are you talking about, Maxime? So I think it is the 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 conscious lack of specificity that Bernier is using, uh, combined with I think to to your point, um, the, the, who the messenger is certainly can temper or soften the tone or can um, can add more people to a conversation because when Mr. Desange speaks that way, he is speaking again from a place of a lived experience, not just in talking about esoteric policy he's had nothing to do with. But I, I think the, the real issues here are that you have politicians who are sort of batting this around like a beach ball uh, and and real people are affected by multiculturalism policy. Um, real young people growing up in this country who may look different or sound different or have different traditions um, are taught through the school system and through other policies that, hey, you know what, you're okay, you're part of Canada, you are Canadian, um, and that has an impact on their ability to go find work, feel socially accepted, I mean, we look at what's happening in countries such as France and Britain today, and not to say that Canada hasn't had its own issues with this, because we have, but to a lesser extent, where young people who are feeling like they are not part of the country they're living in, feel marginalized, who don't feel like French people or British people or German people are self-radicalizing, are committing acts of violence, we do not have that in this country. We do not have race riots in this country. Why? Because our young people are growing up with a greater sense of belonging. And I think multiculturalism policy can have some role in taking a bit of credit for that. All right. Well, we're gonna, going to leave it there, uh, Shanti, but always good to talk to you. Uh, your piece, as you mentioned, is in, uh, in uh, some of the Post uh, media outlets. Uh, great read. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Jill.
All right. That is uh, Shachi Curl. She is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute. And as we said off the top, we're usually talking about poll results and what other people are weighing in on. But Shachi has written about this and about the tweets from Maxime Bernier and the conversations that have followed that.